Welcome to From Our Vantage Point. My name is Nav Negra, Communications and Inclusion Manager at Vantage Point and your host. Today we are joined by Chris Archie to discuss the colonial nature of philanthropy and how we can move away from philanthropy in its current state. Chris is the Chief Executive Officer of The Circle. In all her roles, Chris works to transform philanthropy and contribute to positive change by creating spaces of learning, relationship building and activation. Welcome Chris, excited to have you. Wake no wake, welcome. Um, thanks for having me. My name is Chris Archie, as you said, and I just, you know, always when I'm doing this work, I take a moment to give a shout out to my ancestors and my family. I am Sequatin de Galmoch from Seskin, which is um, in the central interior of the province known as British Columbia, um, and on my father's side, fourth generation settler Canadian. And um, his family has benefited intergenerationally from the gift of land that was not uh, Canada's to give, um, and so built. Uh, homesteads in and around uh, communities in southern Saskatchewan called Maple Creek and Ravenscraig. Um, and I use the she and her pronouns and welcome use of non-binary um, language whenever we can to just um, remind us all of how possible it is to do that work um, to create more inclusion for spaces. And super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Chris. That's a beautiful intro and a really a great reminder to, to encourage this sort of inclusive and non-binary language throughout our conversation. So thank you for that. So we'll start up and I uh, just wanted to kind of uh, harken back to our last month's podcast where we chatted with Vantage Point's Dorla Toon about philanthropic narratives and why they matter and how they impact philanthropy and the systems philanthropy functions around. And so this month, we're going to be focusing around the colonial nature of philanthropy and how we can reframe it, continue to reframe this work. I want to start off by asking you, Chris, about the work you've done at The Circle in working within our philanthropic sector on relearning philanthropy while acknowledging the long history of Indigenous communities ethically stewarding resources. Oh, that's a gorgeous question. I first just have to say how delighted I was to be in um, conversation with Dorla Toon and Brule at the BOSS conference. It was so much fun. And um, one of the rare chances that um, I was in a space where I could be like silly and joyful and playful um, alongside those two. So it was just such a delight. Um, and yeah, just really adored Dorla. So it makes sense that there's a, a thread right between the wisdom that she's sharing and the things that she has to say and, and this connection to um, philanthropy and how colonial it is. I think one of the first things that I should talk about is that um, some of the language we use at the circle, I think, is unique and it's, it's important to us. Um, so when we talk about philanthropy, we actually try to help people understand and differentiate between settler-created philanthropy um, and what we consider to be indigenous philanthropy. So for us, settler-created philanthropy is, the, is based on the wealth that has been gained by individuals and their institutions through the, you know, the wrongful um, or stolen kind of claim, the claiming of mm -hmm. land and labor that was not theirs, right? So essentially, settler-created philanthropy Philanthropy um, is philanthropy that was built on the lands and backs of Indigenous peoples, um, whether it was in the building or the development of an endowment, right. or if it continues in the ways in which philanthropic organizations invest their money in activities or resource extraction, etc., that continue to harm the lands mm -hmm. and the backs of Indigenous people globally. We talk about and use the language of settler philanthropy 
settler created philanthropy mm-hmm. um, to make distinct that it is um, that when people kind of broadly say philanthropy, that that is not a, that's not an appropriate categorization of what we're talking about when I, as an Indigenous woman, as a Sequatin woman, as a Sequatin mother is talking about when I say philanthropy. And so, um, you know, I think that's important language uh, is that part of the reframing requires us to um, develop language that actually is more clear about what we're talking about. And so settler-created philanthropy to us is the encompassing of community foundations, private family foundations, corporate foundations, and others that exist here um, Mm -hmm. in Canada. When when I'm talking about um, philanthropy that is based on how I come to understand um, generosity, contribution, reciprocity, um, from my perspective as an Indigenous woman, that is something that is a very different idea than the work of settler philanthropy currently in its current state. Um, And so, you know, making the language different was important so that we could um, help you know, point people, pivot people in a direction um, the, to recognize first that part of their philanthropic behavior is to acknowledge where their wealth came from, on whose land and hunt, whose back, you know, it was developed. And then second, remind settler philanthropy um, that they're not the only game in town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, when I, when I think about and when I'm in the act of doing of philanthropic behavior from my worldview, my philanthropic behavior is based on multi-generations of laws and teachings that tell me about my relationship to land, about my responsibility to family, about accountability to my community. And without those things, my ability to be a good philanthropic, um, you know, human in the world would be very poor. Because for me, my philanthropic behavior is deeply linked to land, it's deeply linked to relations, um, it's deeply linked to place. And so when all of those um, teachings are active, I am able to give of myself and of my resources in the most generous and reciprocal way. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the major teachings, both in my own culture, but in many others, is a recognition um, that hoarding, right, or amassing a large amount of wealth um, is, it never ends well, right? Mm-hmm. It always ends in some kind of, you know, there's all, I'm trying to think of the different folk tales. There's all kinds of folk tales and stories and teachings about what happens when you hoard um, or get greedy. And um, I feel like those teachings, for example, are ones that settler philanthropy needs to hear and learn about and take action on because they've certainly gotten to that to that space. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll pause there. I just said a bunch. <laughs> I said a no, whole bunch. <laughs> a bunch of really beautiful stuff. I actually think culturally for me, just on that note of, um, you know, those those folklore stories of people who have been amassing and hoarding wealth. I think of my grandmother always told me about the Raja who um, could touch everything, anything and it would turn to gold. I think there is a, like a European version of this as well, but, um, and how basically I think he ended up touching himself and was frozen in time. But yeah, along that same line of, of you know, and we see it with all the, you know, um, movement to eat the rich, so to speak, and, and really questioning why billionaires exist and really this, uh, yeah, hoarding of wealth. I just wanted to really put that out. And that's a really great point. Yeah. And I think that, um, that, you know, there's something really interesting there about that notion of like, you know, when 
the, you know, the, the, the different stories, suddenly then the, the person who can turn everything to gold turns into gold and then is frozen in time. There's something fun there about how settler philanthropic behavior is in many ways um, frozen in time too, right? Mm-hmm. So like they have been behaving in a way that made sense for, you know, the benefit of the rich um, and with a model for charity and, you know, with this focus on endowment building. And now many institutions have more than enough of an endowment to last in perpetuity. Um, And they are kind of frozen in their thinking and their doing. And that being frozen in this point in time is actually harmful to um, everyone and everything around them. Because Mm -hmm. what they have is an opportunity to think and do differently. And yet they're, they're frozen, they're stuck. And so You know, when I think about the work we're doing here at The Circle, a lot of it is to try and support people to take action, to slow down in their um, doing, to be more intentional about the specific practices and policies that they do unquestioningly Mm -hmm. um, in order to change behavior and therefore change the sector. So I like like that that, um, story. I, I think... I'm you know, going off in all kinds of tangents about how important it is that those folk stories from multiple cultures, they have teachings that are relevant to us now. And sometimes, you know, when you hear a story when you're a little kid, you're like, oh, and the moral of the story is da 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 da. And usually, you know, there's an exercise where your teacher asks you to like, listen to the story and what's the moral of the story and how does that apply to our life today? I feel like that's one of the very specific capacities that we have to invite Um, our members into is to actually take their imagination to connect the dots between what they're hearing what they're noticing and then apply it and integrate it into their um, practice and policy and into the way in which they choose to value relationships and value time and so that's that's an interesting thing yeah and I kind of want to continue on that thread a little bit um, and talk about because my next question was really going to be about how can we take these histories and these stories and, and, you know, these practices, like these other, you know, these cultural practices and begin weaving these within our current um, predominant settler created philanthropy? Um, and what do we need to consider when doing this? And I want you to answer that question, but I really do think it's sort of on the folks as well who are sort of engaged in this settler created philanthropy to do that, that weaving and that acknowledgement of storytelling and that that imagination that you're really referring to but yeah so what do you think about like how can we start weaving this into what our current setting is you know when I think about weaving um, and the the actual physical practice of weaving if you've Mm -hmm. ever um, done cedar weaving or macrame or even like one of those kind of fancy friendship bracelets where you had four strands instead of three strands um you know braiding and weaving um i think are really interesting as a metaphor for this question because so first i'll start with like what is the physical manifestation of that labor Mm. and it requires that one you don't do it by yourself that you know you you, like you can't do weaving with one hand that's what I mean you can't do it by yourself you need you need to have both hands in which means you have to be all the way in I think the other thing is um, to do effective weaving work you have to have the right tools and and the mechanisms right so it's like what are the tools that allow me to do the weaving Mm -hmm. do I have a solid application of those tools so that I'm able to um 
create a beautiful, useful artifact. And I don't mean artifact in the archaeological sense. I mean, like right. a physical manifestation of something. Um, but then additionally, you know, you could have all the tools and all of the materials and have a YouTube video being like, okay, here we go. This is what you do. Um, but if you don't have the practice, mm-hmm. um, you know, your ability to be very skillful at doing what you're doing, it doesn't give you the same fruit for your labor, right? And so I think when when we're in the work trying to support an accelerated change and shift in settler creative philanthropy, and when we're doing what we can to amplify the beautiful multi-generational behavior of indigenous philanthropic contribution to their mm-hmm. own communities and to society at large, what I see is that both kind of communities of folks have um, some of the different tools and processes and mechanisms, but only when they come together to do their work will they create the most beautiful tapestry. Mm. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm like holding my hand out here. I am imagining settler philanthropy with a, you know, a big basket of, of financial wealth. And in addition to that, they hold a lot of social capital and political capital. Mm-hmm. And what I see when I look at the beauty and the bounty of indigenous philanthropic behavior, what I see is, you know, a bundle of medicine related to the wise teachings about how to be in relationship, laws about taking what is needed only when it's needed for the right moment in time, Mm -hmm. um, practices about how to be in the right kind of relationship to honor and acknowledge, um, you know, the reciprocity that is needed to kind of cultivate good balance. And that their their bundle actually, you know, it's going to continue to exist regardless of whether it chooses to engage with settler philanthropic behavior. Right. That bundle of medicines and the opportunities that it brings to live in a good way. Um, you know, the fact that we're still here is a demonstration of how that continues to function as it is just fine. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity, if we were to bring settler philanthropic institutions with their financial wealth, um, social and political capital to work alongside indigenous philanthropic teachings and their bundle of medicines in how they do this work, you know, with multi-generations of ethical stewardship um, in play as it stands. I can't help but be excited. I can't help but feel like there's something really amazing there and, Mm -hmm. and necessary and beautiful and, um, and that, that it wouldn't just benefit indigenous communities. It wouldn't just benefit separate philanthropic organizations and institutions, but that actually that kind of deep, you know, tightly woven behavior into uh, an artifact that could be useful and beautiful is one that would benefit multi-generations and many, many people, right? Yeah. Um, and so the work that we do is is oriented to that kind of a future, which is, um, I think, settler philanthropy has a bit of an identity crisis going on. You know, they see themselves as like, you know, we're here to do good and we care about humanity and we have these resources and we're so kind and we get these resources out the door. But if you actually look at their behavior, the actual behavior of you know, from what I've seen, the majority of settler philanthropic institutions is more of their money stays in their accounts 
than mm -hmm. money that goes out the door. And so we have to start asking ourselves, are they actually philanthropic? Because in my view of philanthropic behavior, um, that is not that, that is not a congruent behavior. Yeah. You know, so how can you sit on a huge endowment or how can you sit, how can, how, how can you be comfortable with accepting a hundred applications, demonstrating need for important work in the world, and you're only able to say yes to 10? Like there's yeah. nothing equitable and okay about that kind of behavior. Absolutely. Or how can you hold on to those endowments and then continue to ask to, to keep building on top of those? And, but again, only giving out to those 10 or those five. Um, and I also want to touch on yeah, the- Yeah, we the... could say 3.5. Right, <laughs> yeah. Know, they, ask, they get 100 applications and they give money to 3.5 of those organizations. <laughs> no, exactly. And that actually feeds right, really well into my next question. But before I get there, I also want to talk about the fact that when you were just, you, you were describing the bundle of medicine and, and sort of the laws that are within it and, you know, kind of um, approaching things when that need is there. It also kind of really sounded sustainable to me, which I think in some ways the current settler created philanthropy model, it doesn't feel that sustainable. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, I, I think, you know, sustainable is the language that, that makes sense, but I think there's something else there too, right? So, you know, the white supremacist world we live in and the ways in which the behavior show up in inside of institutions is the that there's a notion that bigger is better mm -hmm. um, and that exponential growth is the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> if we look at climate um, and the harms happening to the earth, we know that yep. like growth for growth's sake is actually harmful. Mm -hmm. Right. Amassing wealth for amassing wealth's sake, harmful. So sustainable, I think, you know, as language, it has been co-opted by different movements and our folks as being a justification for continuation of doing what we're doing. Right. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, we're <laughs> talking about how do we actually um, be in right relation to the land and to one another and to um, the world around us in a way that says there, like, there is always going to be enough for us all. Mm -hmm. And that requires that we're in deep relationship in order to make those judgments. And so what is enough now might look different in a different season. And the only way we know that is because we're in relationship to the land during these seasons, you know, and, um, having enough doesn't mean that it's the same for everyone because right. when you're deep enough, transformative enough relationship, you recognize that an elder might need a different quality of the moose meat than a young woman who is having um, a child, or I would edit that to say a human who is creating mm -hmm. a child um, will need a different level of organ meats to support the creation of that new being. So, you know, the ethical stewardship of resources is really about being in deep relationship and being in enough relationship to know that, you know, this is what's needed. But also, um, you know, when my brother shows up and gives an elder, you know, the liver, because that's her favorite piece of the, of the deer, <laughs> he doesn't stand there and make sure that she cooks it and eats it. <laughs> You know, right, right. He's not like, show me, prove to me that you ate that with your onions or whatever else. <laughs> you know, he's like dropping it off and he's having a visit. Maybe he'll have tea or whatever. He'll, he'll drop it off. And, 
maybe he's invited in for a visit, but maybe that he just leaves it at their door and leaves because they have something else to do. His, his giving, it ends at that moment. Mm-hmm. He's not checking back to say, hey, did you eat that? Oh my goodness, did you give that away to someone else? Well, I need a receipt for that. Right. Did you get a receipt from, from <laughs> Auntie Hazel when you gave it to her? Um, you know, did you, I can't believe you cooked it up and you gave it to the funeral feast. I gave it to you only for you and you were only supposed to use it for eating on a Thursday. Um, you know, so I think that when we put, um, when we put it in that way, we can see how silly it is, you know, totally. in some ways to look at settler philanthropy and the like, we're going to give you this gift, but mm-hmm. we need receipts and you can only use it in this way. And we need you to demonstrate that. Oh, and by the way, we don't actually think you know what you're doing. So we have all these notes about how you can do better. Oh, and um, we're going to send someone to your shop to like watch and make sure you're actually doing it. Um yeah. So anyways, yeah. there's just some other, <laughs> some other <laughs> examples there. I absolutely love that metaphor, that story, that example, because instantly actually what I thought of too is that your brother could have asked what kind of onions you said you were going to use red, but you actually use white. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This like, sounds like someone who's been in nonprofit for a while. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And it really, and, and this is um, coming into the next question, but it really talks about, you know, that trust element. And, you know, we've talked about, actually, you and I, Chris, have talked about this many times before, but that assumption of capacity, the mm. assumption that you can do this, that you can, you know, you can cook the liver, you will eat it all, and you will have it with onions on the side, like that whole example. So I want to ask you as well, just like with that, with that metaphor in mind, how do we change these assumptions? How do we, or how can we, or should we or what approach do we take in sort of showing this trust element and saying like yes trust us to have the capacity to do this trust us that we will do it it might be a little different than what you might assume we should do but you know adding that in like what do you what are your thoughts there well i i have to say that um this might be totally like strange but i um i subscribe to this idea connected to the to what's called the speed of trust mm-hmm. and this concept I'm sure has been around in lots of different like ways by lots of different people but like I first encountered this this concept in a book by I don't even know the guy's name I just know that that the person who wrote it is Stephen Covey of mm. the seven habits of highly effective people that guy Mm-hmm. His son wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. And his book essentially makes the case that the notion that you have to slowly build trust over time is actually unproductive, inefficient, and um, it actually is a time waster. Like he just mm-hmm. has all these different things. It's been years and years since I've read it, and I might be getting it very skewed. Um, but I instantly love that idea because I recognize that for all kinds of reasons, there may be some time that is needed in order to build trust. However, once I saw the case that he built for productivity, for efficiency, um, and for the the way in which the quality of work transforms when trust is an instantaneous, you know, principle in working with people, mm. I I have always um, stayed very true to that notion. And so, if you want to demonstrate trust, then you have to be trusting. But I think 
what that requires is that organizations first need to examine the ways in which they have um, embedded practices and beliefs. It requires institutions to first take a look at all the ways in which lack of trust is embedded in their practices and policies. Right. And the, the first place to take a look at that is in um, wherever they're talking about accountability. Accountability, in my view, is actually um, not just about punishment and not about proving. It's actually a, a demonstration of relationship. So institutions can first look to their policies and practices and, and start to notice where they have these built-in biases that disconnect them from trusting behavior. Mm. So, for example, organizations will do things like, well, we don't really know that organization, so we'll just give them a little bit of money and see if they do well, and let's make sure they report on time. And if they can, you know, show us all the receipts and their ducks are all in a row, then we'll give them maybe a little bit more money the next year, you know. And so they stay under the guise of trust for especially black, uh, indigenous and racialized led organizations. Mm -hmm. um, we're under increased scrutiny to demonstrate our trustworthiness as it relates to managing financials. However... If we look at the general size of grants to say white-led organizations, they're not under the same level of scrutiny. So it's mm -hmm. important for an organization to ask themselves why that might be. Well, that's because, well, we trust a bigger organization. We trust a male-led, white-led organization more than we trust these other ones. They might not say that explicitly, but mm -hmm. their behavior is telling us that. So, you know, back to this notion of the speed of trust. If you want to demonstrate trust in the philanthropic sector as a settler-created philanthropic organization, it's incredibly easy. You can first take a look at who you're funding and fund them more. Take a look at um, the equity-seeking organizations that you fund and fund them um, more abundantly than other organizations. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, of course, I'm hoping that it's My God Funds, which is what Vule talks about, right? Which is multi-year general operating dollars. Give those funds and get out of their way. Right. Don't give them the funds and then say, oh, and can you come meet with us five times a year? And can we bring our donors? And can you hold an event? And can you answer these questions? And can you help us be better? And can you, can you, can you? Yeah. Just write the check and get out of their way. Because if you actually want to support deep equity focused community building work that has an emphasis on social justice and increased equity, yeah. then you need to fund those organizations and get out of their way. Exactly. No, so true. And, and I know we have to take a break, but, um, that's exactly it. It's, it's, it's that whole, it's the trust. It's getting out of the way and saying like, here is more. Do keep doing what you're doing. Here is more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as promised, we are going to take a short break. So thank you so much. We'll be right back with Chris. Humanity Financial Management is a CPA firm dedicated to helping Canadian not-for-profit, charitable, and social enterprises build capacity for strong internal financial management. Humanity Financial Management's part-time controllers and CFOs provide support for budgeting, reporting, audit preparation, policies and procedures, and internal controls. Their results? Financial risk reduction and asset protection. Visit Humanity Financial Management online at humanityfinancial.ca. 
All right. And we're back. Thank you so much. And so, Chris, I want to go back to your the point you made about the tendency of male white led organizations getting those funds, you know, sort of over and over again and sort of with that implicit trust, let's be honest. Um, what can those organizations do to really mm-hmm. acknowledge that that place that they're in? It's almost like it's almost acknowledging that white privilege, you know, and saying, <laughs> I'm not going to take this sort of I'm not going to take these funds. I'm not going to hold these funds for that BIPOC organization or, you know, I'm not going to have this sort of, I want to call it forced collaboration um, in, you know, these funds being given to me Mm -hmm. either instead of that Indigenous led organization or in order to help or collaborate with that Indigenous led organization. Do you know that notion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it is one thing for an organization to be like, okay, we acknowledge that we're pretty white, our leadership's white, we have a pretty white board, like, you know, to go through that exercise of acknowledgement, um, of, of making it visible to themselves is one thing. It's the now that you've made it visible, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to shift your practice and policy? How are you going to increase um, diversity and inclusion inside of your institution? And when and where you recognize that, you know, your development team is chasing after funds because you happen to serve a small amount of equity-seeking humans in your programming, it's time to have the courage and the leadership to say, we are no longer going to, um, you know, seek or or be in competition for funds that are for a specific population unless our population as a staff and a board are actually reflective of it. Um, The other thing is that many larger organizations that have actual development teams could be, you know, actually enabling their or inviting their development teams or fundraising professionals to go to work on behalf of smaller indigenous led or other Mm -hmm. equity seeking led institutions and organizations. Um, For example, um, Vancouver Foundation. Vancouver Foundation is, um, as we all know, Canada's largest community foundation. Um, You know, their fundraising doesn't require a whole lot of output because they have so many years of demonstrated trust because they're the biggest game in town. Folks kind of walk in the door pretty comfortably and are like, hey, I've got a bunch of money. I want to give it to you. You can make a decision about Mm -hmm. where it's funded or where it's granted or like, here's some money, Mm -hmm. but I already know who I want it to go to. And so you take care of the administration on it. Well, in in those kinds of moments, um, I think that it's really great that that's happening. The other opportunity is that they have an amazing development team. And so what would it look like if their development team or the development team of a Toronto Foundation or a Winnipeg Foundation actually, instead of just building their endowment, would suddenly turn to building right. the endowment, perhaps, of other organizations, building increased capital fundraising dollars for an urban um, Aboriginal youth, you know, for Anya's like youth center that they've Mm -hmm. been trying to build for over 10 years. You know, I think that that could be a really beautiful way to use the human resources inside of philanthropic institutions to actually support smaller groups. Yeah. So that's like, you know, here we are going off into the um, woods again, but, you know, but I, I want to come back to, you know, really at the root of this is organizations who are applying to funding should be asking themselves, you know, if we're applying for dollars that are specifically mandated for a particular population group or demographic, 
can we adequately demonstrate that we know enough about that audience group and that we serve enough of them because the makeup of power and decision making in our institution reflects mm -hmm. that group and if the answer is no then get your paws <laughs> off of it <laughs> leave it be for other folks you know if you're in a multi-year relationship with an indigenous-led organization and you're a flow-through funder for them and you're kind of managing the direction and control and you're like ah you know i think we have a pretty good relationship you could ask them every once in a while hey how is this going is there, is there anything we could do to make it better? Um, are you happy to, for us to continue being a flow-through funder for you? Or, or do you have an interest in being set up to be your own organization? Right. And if you do, how can we help get you there? That's another um, important question that, that is, you know, worth considering. And, I, you know, it, it's connected as well to this notion of capacity. So one of the questions um, that you brought up was mm -hmm. about, um, this assumption of capacity as a colonial practice. And so I think one of the, there's, there's some kind of like shaking. Is that just her? I think that's just my dog's like excited panting noise. Sorry. Can, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm good with it. <laughs> okay. Um, so on this notion of capacity, um, you know, so organizations will often create capacity dollars to support um, different institutions um, or different nonprofits. And they'll say things like, you know, we want to support your capacity development. So we'll give you money so you can hire a grant writer. <laughs> so you yeah. can like make a better grant for our applications, or we're going to give you money so that you can do strategic planning or a new theory of change. But here's the prescriptive outline of what that needs to look like at the end. And here's mm -hmm. our list of, you know, of um, facilitators and professionals that we would approve you to work with if you accept these dollars. And what I think really is um, quite a, a, a missed opportunity in those behaviors is that continues to replicate the notion that funders know better than organizations. Yeah. Um, that And so it's a very paternalistic behavior, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is um, the, the bigger capacity gaps actually don't exist in communities and they don't exist in nonprofit organizations. They exist inside of settler philanthropy. Right. So settler philanthropy, if they're having trouble with people, you know, accurately filling out their grant forms and making it through to their advisories to get granted, that is not um, a missing capacity on the nonprofit side. That is a missing capacity on the on the philanthropic institution side. They either have created an application process that doesn't accurately reflect what it is that they're trying to meet the need of. Mm -hmm. They have asked too many questions. They they could have grant program staff who um, aren't effective advocates for um, bringing forward unique. Um, and innovative ideas. Mm -hmm. They could have grant adjudicators who actually uh, are not adequately prepared to give a helpful critique or an okay to awesome ideas because they don't know enough about the community. So they're like grant adjudicators, not reflective of the community who's seeking support. And so, you know, in my view, the capacity gap is in the settler philanthropic sector. And it is why, you know, when I'm doing the work at the circle, not I, like when we're doing the work at the circle, we talk about building 
um, technical and relational capacity. Right. And the technical capacity is predominantly focused on supporting Indigenous organizations understand the um, complexity um, mm-hmm. and the requirements of being in a relationship to settler philanthropic institutions. But it's also about giving them you know, tools and processes and mechanisms by which they can you know, intervene in the status quo and disrupt practices and behaviors and kind of come into those relationships from a position of power. Mm-hmm. What we do with settler philanthropic organizations, you know, when we look at the capacity building work in that space, we're doing what is what we call relational capacity building, right? which is there is a skill set connected to how to be, how to think and how to do differently in connection to Indigenous communities that you will you don't have the ability to do on your own. And so we will support you to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the interesting things that we see in that space around capacity is um, institute, the individuals inside of settler philanthropic institutions often deny or distance themselves from the influence they have. And that in and of itself, I think, is one of the the primary harmful capacity gaps inside of um, the philanthropic sector, Mm. is that if we can't acknowledge where and when we have actual influence, um, then how can we possibly use our influence for good? How can we possibly do the best philanthropic thing? How can we make the most quality decision if Mm -hmm. all we're doing the entire time is saying, oh, no, I don't have the power for that. I don't make the decisions. That's someone else's decision. Um, I'm not supposed to, like, you know, change the grant adjudicator's mind or influence the board. That's all a lie. (laughs) All of the work, you know, I mean, I worked inside of a philanthropic institution for five years. All of those things are happening. It's just that you can choose to do it from a position of understanding and knowing your influence and power and be honest and make it visible. Or you can pretend it doesn't exist and go about, you know, go mucking about um, and cause all kinds of potential um, harm. Absolutely. It's about acknowledging your privilege and power and not having this sort of willful ignorance um, of the whole situation and actually doing something with it. You know, stop leaning on the hierarchy, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We are basically at the end of our episode. This was fantastic, Chris. But before we uh, close up, I want to know, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really want to mention here? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I would say I think there are a lot of opportunities available to people to understand the history of settler-created philanthropy and that that is an important building block to creating a different set of practices and policies for wherever it is that you work. Mm. So if you want to get, you know, focused on, um, you know, doing settler philanthropic work differently, then first understand the history of how settler philanthropy came to be in this country. Understand the ways in which um, the Income Tax Act is um, enables this kind of hoarding of wealth when it comes to charitable organizations. And think about both the, the federal policies that actually, um, or the federal legislation that actually embed uh, set of behaviors that no longer serve the kind of philanthropy that we want to see in the world. The other piece is that, you know, 
the deepest quality philanthropic behavior that we ever see, whether it's with settler philanthropy or in Indigenous communities or other uh, equity-seeking communities, mm-hmm. the best work you can do is to also bring a lens for creativity and humility to your own philanthropic practice in your home and in your life. You know, start to ask yourself questions about um, the, the ways in which you have wealth um, not just financial wealth, but co- capital, social capital wealth, um, political wealth, the wealth of knowledge, of time, etc. Ask yourself how you're putting that in service um, to the communities of which you are, you belong to, or to communities who have faced extreme um, harm. Mm-hmm. And you know, beginning with yourself and in your family is a really beautiful way to just activate um, the recognition that changing and transforming the settler philanthropic sector actually is possible. And um, in order to feel that sense of possibility, um, you can start in your own home. I love that. That's such a great place to end, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I got so much out of this conversation and I hope our listeners will as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I loved having this conversation and um, I certainly think that it could have lasted a lot longer um, and so happy to come back any other time to keep on um, riffing on this. I would love that. So thank you so much for listening. Vantage Point is a not-for-profit organization based in Vancouver, BC that works to transform not-for-profit leadership. Learn more at thevantagepoint.ca. We'd like to again thank our sponsor, Humanity Financial Management. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. Please rate this podcast or leave us a comment on your favorite podcast listening device. Thank you again for joining us from our Vantage Point. 